Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 23, verses 1 to 19. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many, so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep a feast of the unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat the unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of the harvest of the first fruits of your labor of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of the feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. You join me in prayer. Father, we are so grateful for the morning we have had. No better way, really, to spend a day than to be with fellow brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ to celebrate what you have provided for us through his death and resurrection. Father, thank you that up to this point we have had the wonderful privilege of singing your praises of extolling and exalting your name. We have been reminded that we are needy people, but we've been reminded that our need has been met. Help us continue to celebrate you, celebrate the life that we have in you. Father, may we exalt you in the way that we approach your word. May we approach it with sincerity of heart, a true desire 
to put it into practice, to live it out, to apply it, a true desire to share of your goodness with others. Father, thank you for the ministry of your Holy Spirit that illuminates Scripture, that helps us to understand it, and as well helps us to apply it. May we approach the study of your word intending to do what it says, not merely being puffed up in our knowledge, but being effectual doers that we might glorify and honor you among the peoples of this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as we approach this text, we're going to cover a lot of ground, and we're looking at Exodus chapter 22, verses 16 through Exodus 23, 19. And as we approach the law, um, many of you, uh, if you're reading through Scripture in a year, you may be just entering the time of reading the law, or maybe you've just come out of it. But oftentimes our approach to the law may seem as if it's our annual trek through the wilderness. And uh, it, the law really has a bad rap, if you will. And so if there's at least one thing I would like you to walk away with today, right now when you think of the law, one of your um, expressions might be, Ugh. But I want you to leave here with a different expression. Instead, I would like you to leave here going, the law, and you say, oh. Okay. So, so I would like to at least try that today okay, to kind of help get us energized a little bit. So when you, the thing I want you to not do anymore, the law. Oh, okay. And that which I would like you to do, the law. Excellent. Very good. Now, one of the great privileges I have is, to be, is being adopted. And that aspect of my life has really helped me understand the doctrine of adoption. And as we think about the book of Exodus and how God has chosen, has called out and adopted the nation of Israel to be his own, it, it really helps me in my own adoption as a child to understand that doctrine of what God talks to us about and be, being adopted as his child. Also, coming into the summer reminds me a lot of, of just going and being able to go to my dad's work. He uh, ran a furniture store. And uh, in that furniture store, I often had the wonderful privilege of going and going to work with him. And a lot of times it was awesome. I don't know if you know anything. Furniture stores actually used to carry inventory in the back. And with that inventory came a lot of cardboard boxes. And so we had a lot of fun creating um, mazes and forts and things of that nature. But whenever I walked into that store, I w- rarely was I ever known as Andrew or when I was a child I was called Andy. Um, I was rarely known by that. I was often known as Mr. Rogers' son. And often with that came, how is it in your neighborhood? <laughs> and every time before I would go to work with my dad, he reminded me of the code of conduct how I was to behave while I was there at the store. And the reason was is because I was Mr. Rogers' son. And with that wonderful privilege of relationship came a responsibility to behave in such a way that reflected who he is. And the beauty of that was this. I actually learned a lot about who my dad is by the code of conduct. Because the things that he laid down as the code in which I needed to conduct myself were things that were important to him. They were things that mattered to him. They were things that displayed his own character, his own value system. 
approaching the law is no different. When we look at the law of God, we can look at the law and we get a picture, we get a glimpse, we get revelation of who our God is. Because the law reflects the heart of God. The law reflects the character of God. The law reflects what matters to Him. And so as we approach this study, I want us to look at it in that way. Now, there are reasons for the law, and we've talked about some of them here on Sunday morning. One of which is that the law judges. The second thing is that the law distinguishes God's children from others. The law was designed to set Israel apart from other nations. They were not to observe the laws of Egypt, where they had come from, nor were they to observe the laws of Canaan, where they were going. But they were to observe a whole new set of laws, a whole new set that would reflect their privileged relationship with the Creator God. As well, it points to Christ. The law points to Christ through the rituals, through sacrifice. It points to the need for a Savior. It points to the need for a Messiah. And so it points us and reveals and shows us our need for a Savior. Because the law demands perfect obedience. And when we look at the law and we realize that we cannot obey it, that's a good thing. Because that reveals to us our need for a Savior. And lastly, the law instructs us. The whole law teaches us about God. It teaches us about His character and His heart. It teaches us right and wrong. Another great thing that the law does is that it illustrates for us the lesson of the law. Now, I'm going to give you an example. And If you look at Exodus chapter 23, verses 4 and 5, you see a situation there about a man and his donkey or oxen. And it's, it's his approach to an enemy. He sees his, his enemy's donkey or oxen kind of running off, doing its own little thing. And his enemy's nowhere around. And he is told to go and get the oxen or get the donkey and take it to his enemy. Now that is an illustration because we might get too concerned with the details of the law and say, well, wait a minute. I have not seen my enemy's donkey nor his ox. Therefore, I have no responsibility. Okay, no, that's not the point. It's an illustration of the lesson of the law. The lesson of the law is love your neighbor. And who are your neighbors? Even your enemies. Love your enemy. And one very practical way of loving your enemy in that context was that if you were to see his oxen or his donkey away, and you know it's his, you would go and you'd give it and bring it back to him. Or in the next situation in verse 5, he says, what if you're walking along and you see your enemy with his donkey or oxen and all of his stuff on top of his donkey or oxen and it all falls over and you see the donkey down or you see the oxen down and you will be tempted to walk on by and you might even say, And you might be excited about that. But instead, he says, no, no, no. Practical application, way of applying the lesson of the law, loving your neighbor, loving your enemy, would be to go and actually help your enemy with his burden. And so that's another aspect of the law. And so it instructs us. And it helps us know who God is. And it provides for us practical ways in which to apply it. So I want us to approach the study of the law thinking of these three things. Three questions. One, the law. What does the law actually say? Secondly, the lawgiver. What then does the law say about God? And then thirdly, the lesson. What is the principle of the law 
that can be applied. And so we're going to use this approach as we walk through these uh, approximately 37 verses. So we have a lot of ground to cover. So if you would, buckle your seatbelts, and here we go. Look at verse 16. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. This law here in verse 16 and 17 puts before us portraying God as holy, as holy. Purity and holiness in marriage is of great value to God. Now, the seducing of a virgin, this is not an issue of rape or against one's will. This is a consensual relationship. But the couple are not engaged. There is no commitment here to be married. And so if they do this, if they experience the privileges of the responsibility of being married outside of marriage, then they will bear the responsibility of being married. And they will walk through the formal way of being married. And in in that day and age, and in some cultures even to this day, a bride price was to be paid. This was part of the formal way of being married. A price was going to be paid. However, them being married was not a given. It was not a given. Just because they had fornicated outside of marriage was not then a demand that they had to get married. If you look there at verse 17, if her father utterly refuses to give her to him. The father had the right. He could look at this situation and says, I know what you guys have done, and it is wrong. It has defiled the marriage bed. It has devalued the, mar- the marriage relationship. However, in protection for my daughter, I really do not believe the wisest thing is for her to be married to you. And even in that situation, the man would not be released from having to pay the bride price. The consequence was still there. The price was to be paid. Now, why was this there? This was there ultimately to promote godly patterns of courtship, of marriage, and of sex. It was connected directly to the seventh commandment of no adultery. Sex is for marriage. It's not just for personal pleasure. And therefore, God... Just as we see in Hebrews 13.4, we are to hold marriage in honor. It says in Hebrews 13.4, let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And so we see in this passage, God as holy. And in outgrowth, the lesson of this is that then we should pursue purity, sexual purity. Now, the next set of laws, these next three, verse 18, 19, and 20, have one thing in common, and that is the severity of punishment. Each one of them demands death. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. And what these laws point to is they point to God as supreme. God as supreme. He is supreme in counsel, in creation, and in commitment. He is supreme in counsel because in verse 18, when it refers to a sorceress, it refers to a sorceress because sorcerers were often sought after for wisdom. We would go to a sorceress because we wanted to know about things. 
Often today, you, you see the, the many uh, of those that are out there advertising their wares to come on in and, and visit a psychic. Why? What was the purpose? To know something. And this was ultimately was rejecting the wisdom of God. It was saying, I do not want the wisdom of God. I do not necessarily want the will of God. But instead, I'm going to reject that and I'm going to go toward a sorceress. Now, it doesn't mean, again, the letter of the law, the details of that would say, well, wait a minute, I've never gone to a sorceress. So I would be in no violation. That's not the lesson of the law. The lesson of the law would be rejecting God's counsel to seek the counsel of the world. That would be the lesson of the law. And in this case, a practical example would be seeking a sorceress. Now, verse 19, he says, do not lie with an animal. Bestiality was a gross rejection of God's created order. Now, you might think to yourself, well, wait a minute. People really do that? Well, yeah. Uh, it, It shows the depravity and debaseness of mankind. And so as well, this was a rejection of God's created order. It may be also, it was also something practiced by some of the pagan religions of the day. And once again, it was a rejection, an absolute, wholehearted uh, rejection of God's created order. The third one has to do with commitment. It has to do with commitment. It has to do with loyalty to God. Polytheism was completely rejected. Polytheism was not to be a part. It's the first commandment explicitly says no other gods. God's covenant people are to be exclusively committed and loyal to Him as the one and only God. And so these three laws point to the complete and utter rejection of God. In the next set of verses, in verses 21 through 27, they reveal God is compassionate. God is compassionate. We see compassion for the vulnerable And specifically, he lists four groups. The alien, the widows, orphans, and the poor. Verse 21, You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Now, the appeal that God is making here is empathy. That they should be empathetic. They know what it's like. It wasn't that long ago that they were in Egypt as foreigners. They know what it's like to be oppressed. They know what it's like to be vulnerable and to be exploited and to be taken advantage of. And so there is to be compassion toward outsiders. There's a temptation to treat them awful because they're easy marks. They're easy targets. They they don't have protection like those who would grow up in that area. Matter of fact, I remember being new to a school... And uh, it was a country school, and we went from kindergarten through eighth grade. And, and living in the country, my nearest neighbor, the closest friend I had, was seven years older than me. And so I was in first grade, and he was in eighth grade. Now, one day, there were about five other first graders that decided they would like to take advantage of me as an outsider. And so it was me and one other kid that they cornered into a classroom. Now, I don't think they had good intentions. My friend, who was seven years my elder, and a couple of his buddies passed by the classroom, and they walked right in, and they had our back. And that is a wonderful example of what God is talking about here, is that we should have the back of those who are outsiders, those who are foreign, those who are aliens. 
that we should have their back, that they are particularly vulnerable, and we should be there to protect them and come alongside them. God has a heart for them, and because He has a heart for them, then so should we as His children. In verse 22 through 24, we see His compassion toward widows and orphans. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. I mean, here is the compassionate, uh, compassion of God on display. If they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. And then he says, and my wrath will burn. I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Now you might look at that and go, whoa, okay, that's good. You should do that. Because you should look at that and say, wow, this is severe. And that severity should communicate how dear and valuable they are. And how incredibly important it is not to oppress, not to mistreat and take advantage of the widow and to, of the orphan. They are defenseless. They are vulnerable. And especially in that day, without a husband and without a father, they were left unprovided for. And they were left unprotected. And so the idea here is that we should do all that we can to come alongside the orphan and the widow in our midst to protect them and to provide for them. We can do this through housing, running errands for them, supporting or starting orphanages, or even adoption. The third category of people here are the poor. He says, if you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that's his only covering. It is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Now the situation here is this. There would be a temptation to take advantage of the poor and to exploit them. And now he is not saying that it is wrong. There are certain occasions where lending money for the purpose of business and charging interest was okay. But if there are poor among you who are in need and you are able to help them, if you are to give them a loan, you give them that loan interest-free. And Jesus even took that even further and said, you give them that loan and don't even expect to be paid back. And now what was a common practice as well would be to take something for collateral. And in this case, he gives the example of taking someone's cloak. Now, this cloak would be very important. And it would be a great temptation for the one who loaned the money to take that cloak and then not give it to him so that he could sleep in. Let him freeze. He'll be more apt to pay me back and pay me back even quicker. And what he says is, no, 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 no. Do not exploit their situation for your own benefit, but give it back to them. And we are to be sensitive. In the church, we are responsible for making sure that the poor, those in need of food, those in need of shelter, those in need of clothing, are not in want, but are provided for and are protected in the world, this lesson of this law would also apply to the issue of bullying. Bullying ultimately is exploiting the vulnerable. It is taking advantage of the disadvantaged. And we should seek to help to stop it and, and to be a comfort to those who are bullied. 
And if you are one who has been on the receiving end of being bullied, know this well. Your God hears your cry. And He is compassionate. You are dear to His heart. In verses 28 through 31, we see that God is title holder. He is the owner of all things. There is nothing we have that has not been given. Israel had been shown much grace by God. They had been called out and chosen to be His people. In verse 28 it says, You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. As title holder, as owner, He also owns our leaders. Matter of fact, there's no leader in our life to this day that has not been appointed by God. And what He says here very carefully... What he says to them is this. If you curse a leader that is the equivalent to reviling God. The word revile means to make light of. To make something small. To esteem it low. And the word curse is ultimately, I want something really bad to happen to you. And so what he is saying is if you turn yourself against your leaders and you wish upon them bad things and you curse the leader who has been appointed by God, then that would be to make God low, to make light of God and to esteem Him low. We see this lesson even in the New Covenant. Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. You know, when I put Big Brother in charge at home, he has three siblings that are most likely to complain. And when they complain, I have taught them that when you complain against my appointed leader, you're ultimately complaining against me. And it's very important for us to understand. We need to seek to bless our leaders. We need to seek to pray for our leaders. Paul understood this in Acts 23, an interesting scene here. He's standing before the Jewish council, and in the process of speaking, he's smacked in the mouth. And he says, Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? And then those who stood by him said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I don't care who he is. No, that's not what he said. He said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So even Paul in that situation was sensitive to the law of God. Of doing what was right in the sight of God. As a child of God. He esteemed God higher than himself. In the next verse he says, You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. God is title holder. God is owner. He owns everything we have. There's nothing that we have that has not been given to us. And so what he's explicitly saying is that we are to give back to him. We are to give back to Him. And ultimately, He says, give expediently, without delay. And then He says to give proportionately from the fullness and from the outflow of what you've been given. Your leaders are His. Your material goods are His. And so is your family. 
Look at verse 29, last part of the verse there. He says, The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother, and on the eighth day you shall give it to me. In Exodus 13, we, we learn about the right of redemption. That every firstborn son in Israel was consecrated to God with an animal sacrifice. And the idea here is that I own your family. I own your animals. I own your livestock. They are mine. Set them apart for me. Raise them according to my purposes. Raise them the way I want them to be raised. They are not your own. And lastly, even your very self is not your own. We're reminded in the New Covenant that we have been bought with a price. And that our bodies are not our own. So in verse 31, he says, You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. In other words, he's basically saying, Israelites, Israel, you are not allowed to eat roadkill. Okay? I don't know. I don't care what part of the South you're from. You are not allowed. (laughs) And the point of that was to be consecrated, was to be clean. And the idea, the application here in this case was not to eat meat that had been strangled. But the lesson of the law is that we approach God and we are expected to be holy as He is holy. We are to give of ourselves. We see that in Romans, Romans 12, that by the mercies of God we present our bodies to Him. As a living sacrifice, it's holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. And so we're no longer conformed by the patterns of this world, but instead we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. That we live a clean life. We live a life set apart for Him. And the beauty of God's grace is that we are going to blow it and that we are not expected to obey the law perfectly for salvation. How awesome is that? However... One way to illustrate this is that one of the great things about living near the beach is that is an awesome place to teach kids how to ride bikes. Okay? And, and a lot of that is because you won't use as much antiseptic um, and, and you won't use as many band-aids and you won't, you'll have much less trips to the ER because the sand is quite giving, it's quite soft, and so the kids can learn how to ride their bike and they can fall. And they can fall. And they can fall. But you know, the point of teaching them how to ride a bike is that they'll actually go ride a bike. It's not that they're going to keep riding and falling, riding and falling, riding and falling, because they just love it, right? (laughs) But unfortunately, that's the way we approach grace. See, we live by grace. But grace has to do with salvation. It has to do with, I live by grace in the sense that the law was completely satisfied in Christ, and so I don't have to satisfy the law in order to be saved and have eternity with God, yet I'm still expected to obey it. Right? We cannot continue to just say, well, I just live by grace, and I don't ever put into practice what God is having me to do. I don't present my body as a living sacrifice. I'm... Instead, I'm being conformed to the world and I'm not being transformed by the renewing of my mind. There is still an expectation that we would present ourselves to God as title owner, as owner of all we have, and live for Him. So we have seen God as holy. We've seen God as supreme. We've seen God as compassionate. 
and as title holder. And in these next verses, we see God as just. We see God as just. And the first aspect of upholding justice is that we must be honest and upright. And we do that by not spreading lies. In verse 1, he says, You shall not spread a false report. There's no gossip. There's no slander. We're not attempting by um, untruth to sway people's opinions. To upright means to be upright means to not help a criminal go free. He says there at the end of verse one, you shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. In court dealings, there may be many temptations to join in with the wicked. Part of it, we might think to ourselves, well, really? I mean, why would anyone ever be tempted to side with the wicked? Well, the guilty person may actually be going against someone else you don't like. See, remember you've heard that phrase, right? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And we might be tempted to go with the wicked for that reason. The guilty person may be threatening you. The guilty person may promise you something. And this can be applied to other disputes whereby we are tempted to side with the guilty party out of playing favorites or or just simply being afraid to be on that person's wrong side. Third, to be upright means that we do not go along with the crowd. To uphold justice and to be upright, we don't go along with the crowd. Verse 2, you shall not fall in the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice. There exists that ongoing temptation to side with popular opinion. What the others are doing, where the others are headed. We don't want to be different. We don't want to rock the boat. And there's a great temptation then to not do what's right and to bow down to what is popular. And God is saying, no, 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 please do not do that. You will be tempted to do that, but do not do that. Do not go with the crowd in order to pervert justice. But there's a balance here as well. Do not side with the lowly. Verse 3, he says, you shall, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. See, there's this great temptation to side with the vulnerable or the underdog. Many of us get really excited when the, when the small man faces the big man in court and we're excited when he wins, even if he was wrong. I mean, there's not too many of us. If we were sitting in a court and it was Prince John versus Robin Hood, there's not too many of us that are going to side with Prince John, even though Robin Hood was clearly a criminal because we are tempted to go with the underdog and What he is saying is justice will not be held or upheld. Uprightness will not be accomplished if we side and will be tempted to be indiscriminate or to be discriminating against who we support and who we don't support. As well, in in verses 4 and 5, which we covered in the beginning, we are to be gracious. We love our enemies even when they're not around and no one would even notice. We love our enemies even when it might mean we have to interact with them. And to put it in a modern day situation, if you're living in a neighborhood and there's somebody that you know just just for whatever reason does not like you, and they have made you their enemy, and so therefore you do not like them either. And you see that maybe they've accidentally left something out in their yard. And you think to yourself, maybe we should go pick that up for them. But then you think, wait a minute. 
That's the Johnson family. We don't like them. Any other family in the block, fine. But not them. The lesson of the law of loving your neighbor, including loving your enemy, would be I go and I take care of them and I do to them as I would love done to me and I love on them even when they're not around and no one is there to notice it. And even if it might mean I have to interact with them knowing that they don't like me. And then in verses 6 through 9, maybe the most familiar of justice is being impartial. Being impartial. The idea here is being fair to all people. In verse 6, be fair to the lowly. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. When judging disputes, we're not to favor the rich and powerful and discount the lowly and the poor. We are to be fair to the innocent. Keep far from a false charge. Do not kill the innocent and righteous. For I will not acquit the wicked. You shall take no bribe. For a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. This is the flip side of verse 1 where the injustice was to help the guilty go free. Here, the injustice is to treat the innocent as if they were guilty. And we want to be very careful that we discern the difference And then lastly, be fair to the outsider. Verse 9, he says, You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. In other words, again, here is an appeal to empathy. Israel, you know what it's like to be a sojourner. You know what it's like to be an alien. Let us not oppress them. In verse 10 through 12, we see God as merciful. God is merciful. In these two verses, three verses, he adds a, another aspect to Sabbath. And he adds here a Sabbath year. Six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow. The purpose of this was not connected to reverence and worship of God, but instead it was actually an act of mercy. It was an act of mercy on the land. Give it a rest. It was an act of mercy on your animals. Give them a rest. And it was an act of mercy on the poor that they might feed off and be fed off your land in that year. And the Sabbath day likewise is like is the idea of giving everyone a rest that they may be refreshed. And then in verses 13 through 19, we see God is sovereign. He says, pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. He is expected to be obeyed. The word for pay attention there in the English, that might just simply mean pay attention. And that's it. There's nothing for you to do. You were just simply to pay attention. But in Hebrew, the idea of paying attention is that you are to pay very close attention to what is being said so that you might be very careful to put it into practice. It is to look at the law carefully that you might apply it correctly. That you might apply it correctly. And so there's an expectation that he is to be obeyed as sovereign. As sovereign, he is also expected to be worshipped. In verses 14 through 19, we have here the three festivals they are to do on a regular basis. And we have in, in verse 14, I'm sorry, Yeah, in verse 14, he says, Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. 
You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. You shall keep the feast of harvest in verse 16 and the feast of ingathering. And these three feasts were done ultimately in commemoration of God as a gracious Savior and as a generous provider. That He provided for them salvation and He also continues to provide for them what they need to survive. The idea of the unleavened bread was a direct remembrance of the Exodus moment. When they were called out, they had no time to let their bread rise. They were called out and expected to go right away. And so the idea of the unleavened bread was simply this. It would call back to memory. Do you remember? We were called out. We didn't even have time for our bread to rise. It's similar to what we do when we come to the Lord's table. When we come to the Lord's table and we celebrate with the bread and and with the drink, we are celebrating and remembering what Christ did on the cross. That on that day... That when Jesus Christ hung on that cross in our place, He bore the entire wrath of God that is due upon each of us for our sin. He bore that willingly. And on that day, He put our sin to death that we might be free. So when we celebrate the Lord's table, we remember that moment. We look back. Do you remember Jesus Christ? Do you remember the life He lived? Do you remember that He went to the cross willingly? Do you remember that He died in our place? Do you remember that? That's the idea. And that's what He's calling to attention here. And He's expecting that they would worship continually, righteously, and with excellence. This is to be done regularly, He says. This is to be done with righteousness. In other words, you prepare yourself... Even as we approach the Lord's table today, Paul instructs us in 1 Corinthians 11 that we do not approach the table in a wrong way, in an unrighteous way. That means we need to deal with our sin. If you are here today and you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, this celebration is not for you. But you can easily make it for you. By submitting yourself unto Him this day. For those of you who have made that confession, you have made that commitment, and you come to, have come to Christ, then it makes certain that we evaluate ourselves and make certain that we are approaching the Lord's table righteously. That if there is unconfessed sin in our lives, that we will confess that sin knowing full well that He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, that we might partake righteously. And lastly, our worship of Him should be marked by excellence. He says in verse 19, "...the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God, and you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk." The idea is that we are to give Him the best of who we are, our best time, our best effort, our best abilities, our best concentration. The best of who we are. Now I know many of you, if you've read ahead, are wondering, and you're just right now, you're on the edge of your seat, what is he going to do with that very last part of the passage? Very last part of verse 19, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Another way of saying it is boiling a kid in its own mother's milk was simply inappropriate. 
Now, it may be directly related to the the issue that it was inappropriate because mother's milk was connected to life. And obviously, cooking something was connected to death. And they should not be connected to each other. That's one aspect. The other idea is that this was a practice of other nations and of other religious rites. And we wanted to be, they wanted the nation to be so separate from that 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 would not occur. We don't know exactly what it is and which one or maybe another reason. Either way, it was forbidden and it did not correspond with what is excellent in our worship of God. So the law is a wonderful piece of literature. It reveals to us the character and heart of God and provides clarifying examples of how to apply the lessons of the law. We've seen that God is holy, and so we strive toward sexual purity. We have seen that God is supreme, and so we commit to God's wisdom and purpose. We have seen God is compassionate, and so we seek ways to protect and provide for the vulnerable and the disadvantaged. We have seen God as title holder, and we honor and use all we have for His glory. We have seen that God is just, and so we commit to being honest and impartial. We have seen that God is merciful, and so we seek to show care and concern for others, helping provide for their needs and giving them rest. And last, we have seen God as sovereign, demanding our obedience and our worship as our gracious Savior and generous provider. Father, we come before You grateful. We are grateful for what You have provided, especially through Your Son, Jesus Christ. That in Him, as our substitute, we have the forgiveness of sins. We have redemption. We have reconciliation with You, our Father. And we have adoption as sons. We have a new relationship with You, a familial relationship, a relationship that marks us out from others. We are indeed to be different. We are indeed to represent You and to represent You well. Church, as you sit and think about how wonderful our great God is, Will you ask Him to reveal any unconfessed sin in your life? If the servers would please come forward. And while the servers are coming forward, will you please prepare yourself for taking and partaking in the Lord's Supper? Asking the Lord to reveal any unconfessed sin and confessing it to Him this moment. Father, we thank You so much that in Christ we do again have the forgiveness of sins. Thank You that if we confess our sins that You are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, Father, we do this in remembrance of You. Thank You for this table. In Jesus' name, amen. As you leave this day, let us consider Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14.
For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. If you are here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, or if you do and you are struggling and would love to be able to speak with someone, to have someone pray for you, then there are people that are up here this morning that will remain here for you. And so please take part in that if that is something that you need to take part in this morning. Other than that, you are loved, you are cherished. Have a wonderful day. You are dismissed.